What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to episode 11 of the High Bar Podcast. We are now resuming our regularly scheduled programming between myself and Chance here. What's going on, Chance? Um, I want to I wanna just let everybody know that you're out of your mind because I was going to bed last night at about 3 a.m., which many people will say is late. I don't personally think it's late. I think it's perfectly normal. But at any rate, I see that Chance watched my story. But the thing about Chance watching my story is that this is now his wake-up time. So uh, what the fuck are you doing, man? What are you, what are you doing waking up at 3 a.m.? Not even five seconds into the podcast and you put me on blast, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I am, like, so shifted over since the meet and... Like, I've been just going to sleep, like, super, super, super early, and then I just got on the schedule. And now, because it's, like, heat index, like, heat warning everywhere and air conditioning being out in some gyms, it's, like, I'm cool with training in, like, 80 degrees now, like, in the morning. Like, training at, like, 6, 7 a.m. Been great. Yeah, so I I asked Chance. I was, like, okay, like, when are we doing this podcast today? Like, is is evening time cool for you? Like, before bed, whatever. And he's, like, yeah, before bed, like, 5 p.m. And I'm just like, dude, what the fuck is going on? I'm impressed. Do you have like, do you have like blackout curtains or some shit? Because I would yeah. not be able. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I would not be able to sleep while the sun is still up. And like, I've I've tried, and I think there have been some times where I've gotten better at this of actually going to bed at like a earlier hour. I wouldn't say like an early hour, but I feel like during the day I'm just like so. I don't know. Focused on. Like my brain is like, all right, I'm, I'm answering lifters or I'm focused on my lifting that like nighttime rolls around and there needs to be like this several hour period of just like thinking for myself. And because of that, like there's just nothing I can do, whether it's, you know, putting the, the blinds down or like shutting off like TVs or phones or whatever. It's like I can't get myself to like turn my brain off to get to bed at a reasonable hour. Do you use like blue light glasses or anything like that? So I don't use blue light glasses, but I have like flux on the, on the mm -hmm. phone and on the computer so that I'm just not getting like that intense blue light from either screen. Uh, but maybe, I do both. Maybe that's not enough. Yeah, do both. Yeah. I feel like how much are, how much are blue light glasses? I've actually never looked into them. Like $15 on Amazon. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. That's a no brainer then. I'll definitely, I'll look into it. I'll look into it. But I, I, I always give myself excuses for why I can just fall <laughs> back into these like degenerate sleep patterns. Um, but I, tra I trained at your hour the other day. I woke up at like, I couldn't fall back asleep. It was like three in the morning. I couldn't fall back asleep. And I was like, I actually physically feel like pretty good. Like that's something that I've noticed lately. And I feel like part of it is diet related, but like back in, you know, maybe a year ago and everything before that, like, training you know probably a combination of training and then just like it being early in the day i would feel super fucking like achy and inflamed and i was like i need to be awake and about like more in order to actually get myself to the gym but it, it rolled around like 5 a.m rolled around and i was like all right i've been awake for two hours my body feels ready to go let's see what time the gym opens and then i realized that my gym opens at 5 a.m so i was like fuck it i'm going nice I yeah, I mean, I, I do like hot showers in the morning or when I wake up and after training, I always take like ice cold showers. Oh, like, even if it's not to just like, just if I take two showers that day, it's that one like ice cold just to get like stress relief. 
it feels really good after training. I don't know if there's data to support it on any sort of like anti-inflammatory properties or stress relief, but I do feel like much more clear headed afterwards. Hmm. I used to do that. I, uh, it's literally just like, uh, if I feel like it, I'll do it, but never anything regimented. I know that Huberman has like an entire, um, like sub series of episodes about cold and cold therapy. So it is like anti-inflammatory, right? In that it, you know, you're literally cooling yourself down. But when it comes to training, I, I don't believe that that's advantageous because the inflammatory process following training is really important. However, one of the things that he did mention in a podcast, um, I can't remember which episode it was, so I'd have to, I'd have to dig for it, but something about cold therapy and like skill learning, which is really interesting how like being subjected to like cold, whether it's through, um, you know, like immersion or if it's like a cold shower, for example, actually helped with like learning like high stress skills which I thought was super, super interesting because it just has something to do with reducing the temperature, you know, core body temperature or something along those lines. But I wonder what that would mean for lifting, right? Because like, I think we know muscularly that cooling yourself down is not advantageous just because recovery wise, you do want that inflammatory process. But I wonder if like, there's that improvement in the skill element that actually like, maybe offsets it. Like if you, if you took two groups and we're like, one is going to, you know, SBD and then take a hot shower. One's going to SBD and take a cold shower. Like does the, does the skill component that supposedly is enhanced make up for the fact that you're, you know, maybe delaying the, the inflammatory, like quote unquote healing process. I'd be curious, but. The anti-inflammatory discussion on like either the straight up ibuprofen and how you react or how your body handles that, you know, with hypertrophy or you atrophy less or whatever it is. Um, I don't know, like I obviously do the cold shower after training, but really I don't think it makes that much of a difference. The ibuprofen studies that you've seen, like when people take ibuprofen, yeah, yeah, like they give the elderly 800 milligrams of ibuprofen for like six months or something and compared like the muscle mass from both groups, right? And it's like, okay, that means one thing, but also what does that mean for people that are training, you know, extremely hard and doing, you know, a shit ton of, you know, volume and what does that actually reduce, right? How much does ibuprofen really affect that? So even in that sense, I'm trying to compare the two. How much does the cold therapy really make a difference? If it's offsetting the stress, maybe, that that's enough? I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. I stopped it's taking- interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I stopped taking ibuprofen though a long time ago. Like I, I, I got on the train because of you for meat day and I still do it on meat day because it feels super nice. I, uh, <laughs> for anybody listening, I'm not a doctor. I'm not making any sort of uh, <laughs> medical, medical suggestions here, but I remember this had to be like three, four years, probably like four years ago at this point that chance was like, dude, like 800, a thousand milligrams ibuprofen before you start competing and you'll feel amazing. And it's so true. Like it just makes your joints feel like light. Like I remember there's just like one meet where I'm just like, like bouncing up and down in a squat, like in the warm up room. And I'm like, you know, just trying to move around, stay fluid. And it just feels like your joints are just like more cushy. You feel like more light on your feet. Like you don't feel the, the knee ache that you would feel in normal training or, you know, the, the creakiness of any of your joints. So it's not, it's not medical advice, but I have, I have done it and I've greatly enjoyed it on meet day. Um, but yeah, I stopped 
there were days in training where I felt like I needed it maybe like two years ago or so, a uh, year and a half ago, maybe, but you know, knock like on wood. Fucking druggy. Like I don't yeah, exactly. <laughs> but now, now, nowadays I, I definitely don't need it at all, which is, which is nice. So are you, still, are you still, uh, Oh, there are definitely days where I need it for sure. Yeah. For sure. There's certain, like, certain days where it's like, is it a knee yeah. thing mostly for you? Uh, yeah, usually knees. Um, but besides that, not really, right? Like, especially with deadlifts, I'm fine. There used to be a period where like deadlifts were really hard on my knees, but really good. Yeah. Huh. I've like, obviously you, your deadlift is like, you know, you're very upright, you use your quads a lot, but I feel like it's not like that drastically different because mm -hmm. from mine, I mean, your pull is prettier, but I don't, I don't know how significantly different it is. Cause I've never, I've never felt my knees on a pull ever. Um, you know what really bothers them is pause deadlifts for me. Really? That's why I don't do them, yeah. Wow. Hmm. Yeah, no, a pause deadlifts for me, I mean, I've talked about this a million times, just ad nauseum, like, they just, if I don't do them, I'll forget how to fucking deadlift. Like, it's, just, <laughs> it's that simple. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, let's, let's get into the topic for today. This is going to be an interesting one for, for anyone listening for, I don't know the breakdown, I don't know, Chance, you have... I, access to these analytics or if it's even available for Spotify, but the gender breakdown of our listeners, because this yeah. will be very interesting for, for all the ladies out there listening who want to, who want to learn more about programming, want to learn more about their own training. Today, we're going to talk about programming for women in powerlifting and, and how that maybe differs from the men's side. I've seen some posts over the years saying that there's no difference between how you program for men and women. And what I have to say to that is, fuck you. <laughs> that's not true it's absolute bogus there's absolutely a difference and since this was your topic of choice today chance i want you to to introduce it for us let us know what your what your summarizing thoughts are yeah i mean this topic is you know uh it's so we can talk about so much right so when we're looking at women's training we're typically looking at smaller lifters than men we're typically looking at um women obviously having a little less testosterone, obviously they have um, a little bit better capacity to, you know, handle training. They typically don't respond as well to the more strength based sets, or they do, they do a lot better typically with hypertrophy and, and getting those higher rep sets in. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's pretty much on, on, you know, on the nose, exactly what I've seen as well. Uh, the interesting thing too, that I've seen with female lifters is like, they do really well at the poles. Like they do really well with the high rep stuff and they do really well with like singles. Like they can tolerate pushing their singles a lot harder, a lot more frequently. And then kind of everything that sits in the in-between, maybe there's some like individual differences here, but like, it's exactly what you're saying. It's, I find it to be more the case that their, their top end strength can, can thrive from the development in those higher rep ranges. And, and I remember seeing a study that, you know, and again, studies are, are definitely not the end all be all. I think people listening to this probably know that I, I think science is, is stupid. Um, but <laughs> there's a study that I saw, this is a joke. This is a joke for any of the Reddit power lifters who might come across this podcast saying that Sean doesn't believe in science. I believe in science, just only my science. Anyway, uh, Menno, Henselman's, who's, if you don't follow him, he is a G and uh, he pub not published. He reposted a study 
I think I saw it for the first time in 2018, just talking about women's capacity and strength training to handle just more overall workload. Just like it is something that they can tolerate significantly better than like their like weight matched male counterparts. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think part of it alluded to like absolute strength as a part of it. Part of it alluded to like fiber type distribution as a part of it. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that has been very rewarding for me to coach. Like I, I remember when I first started coaching powerlifting, like I, most of my roster was men. And I think that's the way it is for pretty much every male coach that, that comes up because, you know, I think female lifters are a bit more, uh, careful with like who they decide to give their training to. Right. Like I think that for, for men, it's, it's most of the time I would say at least it's like, all right, let me find a coach who's like, just going to fucking, you know, kill me and take me to the best strength level that I can. Whereas, you know, obviously I think female lifters kind of need a little bit more, uh, like I see a lot of female, female lifters who are like pretty strong. Like they'll go to a coach who's maybe not the best, but they just know them. Yeah. And it's like, they just need that, that level of comfort or like trust on a more personal level to start coaching somebody and, or start working with someone. And when I first started coaching, I had like a, a couple female lifters here and there. And now it's at the point with my roster, it's like 35% female, maybe even a little bit more than that. And like, I've made it my goal, especially in the past, like two years, like I'm going to build like a really, really strong female roster. Like I want to build like the heavy, the heavy hitters on the female side. Cause I think that you, you learn more about coaching when you can really nail things with a female lifter because there are so many, um, you know, it's just, it's just a break from the traditional like strength training methodology, right. As we Mm -hmm. kind of alluded to already. Um, but there's just like a lot of like weird fickle things that happen with their training. Like peaking is something that's not as straightforward either. So if you can learn from those extreme examples, then it just makes it easier to carry that over into some more predictable lifters. Um, and then I just think on like the actual coaching side of things, like I think you learn to be a, a better coach. You have more patience. Cause like, let's be real the way that the way that female lifters, the way that women interact and respond to training stress in a, in a psychological way or how they communicate with their coach. It's just different from how men usually communicate about this stuff. Yeah. And I think that all for the better, it's made me a more, a more patient coach, a, a, a more resourceful coach and being able to learn how to communicate things in different ways. But yeah, man, tell me, tell me uh, your experience in, in coaching female lifters. Cause I know that we talked about, this the other day where it's like, yeah, like this is a, a, an aspect of my coaching that I definitely want to, to continue to grow and where I'm like leaning into right now. I think it's interesting, you know, for people that have seen my training, especially the last couple of years, they've probably seen me do, you know, a lot of higher rep sets. They probably see me do a little bit more aggressive frequency, you know, maybe just volume in general. Uh, and we see a lot of the smaller girls work well in those ranges, right? So a little bit more extreme ends, like you said, um, where it is some of the higher rep stuff that gets a lot of good benefit. Um, and then it is like the singles, right? Like it may be, you know, higher exposure to, you know, bench singles, right. That they can tolerate, you know, typically because the absolute load is lower, right. Uh, because the arch and position that they may have typically they tend to be a little bit more mobile 
and have a little bit better positioning and they can handle the work a little bit better. So they typically do more into these higher or extreme ranges where we'll see someone, you know, I think the best example is where you, you know, you do a female's, uh, you know, bench training and, you know, they're, they'll say, okay, I have a single at nine and they'll keep going and they'll crush, you know, a single that's, you know, right below their max. And then they'll go up two and a half kilos and it's so hard or it's maybe a miss. Um, and we see that a lot, right? So it's the exposure to those higher end ranges that I think works really well. And uh, yeah, I mean, I kind of like to think of it as a reflection on my own training or where I say like, I almost write my own training like I'm a 52 kilo girl, you know? Hey man, it's 2022. If you want to be a 52 <laughs> kilo girl, dude, what are the records right now in the 52? The oh shit. Dude, you're going to blow them out by like 400 <laughs> kilos. You'll be good. Um, but yeah, dude, that's so, so what exactly what you're saying? Like I've, I've seen some extreme, extreme examples with some of the girls on my roster where like, you know, what, what, we're, what you're saying there is like, you know, their capacity for, for overall volume tolerance is there. Their capacity for, for being able to rep out closer to their 1RM is there. But then you kind of fall in that middle of the, you know, middle range, rep range area where it's like, they're not great at like moving that intensity, but it's just like also like far enough from being specific that you are just better off doing singles. Um, mm -hmm. I have one girl, she's uh, this girl, Courtney. If Courtney, you're listening to this, you're super strong and, I'm, uh, and I love coaching you. But it's wild how <laughs> heavy I have to write her like high rep, because I give her percentages on one of her squat days. And it's insane that she'll take like 80% for like three sets of eight, not even just mm -hmm. like a, I'm hyped up, let me fucking bang this out. Because people, there are people who can do that. Assuming you're just like relatively lean and like, you know, in, in decent shape, you can, you know, get yourself amped up and you're, you're not going to bed the night before. Like, all right, I'm going to hit 80% for a set of eight tomorrow. But like, she'll take a single and then she'll just back down like three sets of eight at 80% and she'll just burn through it. Like I have uh, another one, Sh Shannon Carr. If Shannon, if you're listening to this, like we'll load, you know, 360 on squat and her best squat ever is 402 and she'll just do a set of eight and like every rep just moves the same. It's, it's crazy to see it. And I've seen someone like Amanda, right? I, you can almost say this is this extreme end in where I've seen Amanda do something very similar. And you would think, okay, the absolute load is so high, right? That she probably can't handle that. But I've seen for years her do that same similar you know, work that's you know, re resulted in some, some progress, obviously. So it is interesting to see that it's kind of, even though the absolute weight may be higher, they still can respond very similarly. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, like when, when like Daniela was in her, in her prime with powerlifting and, you know, I would write her, you know, like more mid to high rep range sets. Like there's, I think she, at the time where she only squatted 501, she took like 455 for like seven, something like along those lines. Like it's just, it's, it's, uh, what was I? What was her max again? You said 501? At the time, yeah, I think that the best that she had hit in the gym was like 501. Because for a guy, right, when you're squatting like 460 for a triple, 470-ish maybe, yep. for a triple is like 500, you know? Yeah. yeah. Dude, it's so fun. Do you get DMs still where people are like, when, like, do you think that I can hit 
like this weight because I hit like this rep PR. Like that ha- that's happened to me so many times where I'll get a DM and it's like, hey, I just tripled this or I just hit this for a set of four. Like they're like trying to figure out if like that indicator set has them at that milestone number. And they're like, when, when you hit 500 for the first time, what were you, what, how many reps could you do 455 with? Because I just want to know, like I just did it for four. Am I good for 500? And I'm like, dude, I don't, I don't know. It, it's, it really depends on what that, that first rep velocity is like. And we kind of talked about this, you know, I talked about this in a YouTube video. We talked about this on a, on a podcast. It's like, everything is, everything comes back to bar speed, right? Like if you're, if you're trying to predict one RMs, like rep, rep PRs don't mean dick. Like that's why, you know, the fat boys can hit these crazy numbers, you know, despite not having crazy rep PRs. Cause if you ever watch their sets, it's like that first rep is like RP four. And then their second rep's like six. And then their third rep, they just like fucking die. And they're like, all right, this is, you know, 85% of my max. But if you can keep, you know, if you have a certain bar speed that's significantly fast and you could just keep adding weight, you know, you're, you're golden. Whereas like I have, I have a couple female lifters like Shannon, for example, like she'll hit crazy, crazy rep PRs on squat, but it's just like that first rep is slow. And it's unfortunate, like it's good for her training that she can take those intensities and like really, really build up some crazy sets and have exposure more often to those heavier percentages of her one RM. But it's just, it's like, it's not indicative. It's not indicative at all. And then I have, you know, another female who is, um, you know, almost as good of a squatter as she is, not quite there yet, but she has more of like that, like man force curve where like she's not as good at reps and I don't know which situation you'd rather be in, uh, whether or not you'd rather, you know, like suck at reps and not really be able to take near your max as often, but just have a, a higher E1 RM based on it. Or if you'd rather, you know, be able to grind away on a, on a, you know, 85% of your one RM top set of five or six, but then go up, you know, 20 kilos and have that be the end of it. I don't know which one I'd prefer when it's like a deadlift set and you watch that first rep and it's super grindy, that's the worst, right? Because then you're like, Oh, and they do, you know, three or four reps. You may have been able to do five to 10 kilos more as like a full one RM. It's more, it's for me, I've seen it way worse on the deadlift where squat typically isn't as bad, right? If it's a little slower, it's okay. Right. But yeah, I, I would say for women, because it's so normal for them to be able to handle those higher uh, weight with reps or four reps um, to be a little bit more on the strength side, closer to the, the, the guy, right. Where they can do those, um, you know, singles or the first rep is like effortless. And then the, the later reps get a little bit slower. Um, I'd always want air on that side to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that, that was the case for, what was it? The six twenty for four squat that I took, in prep for nationals where like, that's what made me so happy about it is that there was just like that more of that, that quote unquote man force curve to the set where it like started off really fast and then died out quick. Like it sucks when you're going through a set as you're going through it and the reps are getting harder, but to not grind the first rep and then repeat multiple grinds, I think that's indicative of, of higher top end strength than just being able to, to grind, like you said. And I, I'm, it, on deadlift, like you, you were just saying, it's, it surprises me how many people still like, don't give that credence. Like they'll, they'll grind out like a triple or a set of five and they'll be like, oh yeah, this is a rep PR. Like I'm definitely good for this. And it's like, <laughs> your first rep was a, a 
fucking ordeal to break off the floor. Yeah. Um, and if you're strapped up, it's like really easy to just like come back down and immediately reset the position. And it just, it makes all the successive, you know, reps easier, which, you know, we yeah. all know. But that first rep is where you're actually doing a full rep. The second rep and later reps, typically you have all the tension pulled out. Everything is locked in and then it's just moving again. Right. Versus like reconnecting to the bar. <clears throat> yeah. I'm glad that I, despite the fact that I like use straps and, and, and do these high rep sets, I feel like I have like a pretty like honest relationship between my, my reps and my, and my one RM. Like I have like Blake, for example, Blake Barrett, like he's close to me in like all of my rep PRs on deadlift, but I out pull him by like 70, 80 pounds. Mm. So fuck you, Blake. Uh, you're my least favorite client. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. He's definitely not even going to listen to this. There's no shot. But really? Ooh, he might listen. Maybe see the clips. Maybe Blake, put out some clips. Blake, you smell. All right. I'm, uh, I'm getting out of pocket here. So, Chance, with, uh, with female training, let's get back to the, the topic at hand here. How has it evolved for you? over the years, because I, I know that the way that I've coached, just coached in general, right? Like if you look back at a program that I wrote in 2016, I'd be like, Oh, this is fucking stupid. And it just in general, right. We've evolved as coaches. So you've had this intuition, this understanding that there is a, a difference between how you program for men and women for quite a while but have there been any things that you've picked up on in more recent history that have kind of within that same framework altered the things that you do from a programming standpoint for women, whether it's like, you know, the style of sets that you prescribe the, you know, pacing of increasing volume when they take their heaviest lifts during a prep, all that sort of stuff. So hmm, I think like for bench, maybe I've been erring more on the side of more sets than necessarily going into those higher rep ranges because yeah, like I think, you know, and I guess I should clarify, right? Like maybe fours, five, sixes, maybe not seven, eights, nines, even though they could probably handle it and maybe going towards, you know, more sets instead of the reps mm -hmm. um, just to get the quality of work better, you know, a little mm -hmm. bit more um, consistent uh, with squat, you know, probably, erring more on the side of, you know, doing the higher rep sets, maybe even going to more frequent days, maybe three times a week squat. Uh, but then I'll go to something like, you know, belt squats pretty quick. Um, whereas I may not go to belt squats as quick with a male. Gotcha. Yeah. I love ascending sets for female lifters hey. for a couple of reasons. I know chance you love your ascending sets in general, but mm -hmm. With, with female lifters, I notice, and I'm sure you do as well, one of the biggest differences, I think, between men and women when it comes to, like, during training differences, I feel like women do not fatigue as much during a session. Like, if you had them take a single and then ask them to repeat it, they could probably repeat it at comparable RPE. Whereas, like, if I asked you, you know, to take 800 on deadlift and then take 100 again, like... It could be like an at seven and then like an at nine and a half. You know what I mean? Like the drop off within a session, I think is so much more severe. And because of that, and then because of, I think the psychological factor, 
I've found that female lifters like absolutely, absolutely thrive off of ascending sets because, mm-hmm. you know, for, for someone like me, you know, I'd really have to pace myself and almost like undershoot. If I were prescribed, like, let's say a set, you know, let's say it's fives on squat and I were prescribed like six, seven, eight, right? Like my, what I call a six, I'd probably have to like turn my brain off and get like into a very low hype, you know, state of mind. And then maybe like undershoot it by like half an RP or an RP to kind of leave that space to make those jumps. Whereas I feel like female lifters, like you could give them at six, at seven, at eight, they could be in the same mindset the whole way through. And it just, they can add more weight to the bar. Um, And then the second thing is like, I feel like a lot of female lifters just tend to be, you know, a bit more timid. Like I, I, I love it when like a lot of my female lifters surprise themselves. Like that's always a great feeling where they like think they're not capable of hitting a certain weight and then they just fucking smash it. And they're like, Oh, I didn't think it was going to be that easy. And I find that like the top set back down layout, like, well, of course that's useful. Sometimes it's like daunting for a lot of female lifters where, you know, they don't get uh, adequate confidence, like working up to that top set. Um, or they might, feel like there's a, a cap for the day that isn't the true cap for that day. So they might just undershoot the, the set in general, or, you know, they're attached to a certain number that's going to be loaded onto the bar. And that kind of creates a, a fear surrounding it, but giving them that exposure of like, all right, you're going to take this set at six and it ends up being, I don't know, 275 pounds. And they expected that to be the eight and then they smoke it. And it's like, okay, you can go up. And then they go up and they take 286 and they're like, holy shit, that moved even faster. Like, I feel really good. And they go to 292 or 297 or whatever it is. And it's like, you just build the confidence as you go. And because you have the capacity to actually recover intraset and then, you know, or interset, I guess, and then move on to a, to a heavier weight, it's like, you're just getting so much more productive training in. And I've seen, yeah. so, like, I have so many, I have so many female lifters who have just like busted past like mental barriers because of this setup. And I know that that's the case for, for male and female lifters. If you, you know, are doing ascending sets and are responding to them. But I think that, you know, like I said, it's just, there's, there's just this innate ability to recover for them. Like if you're, if you're listening to this and you're a, you coach female lifters and you've been struggling with, with, you know, figuring out their programming or a female lifter who just like self coaches or just freestyles their stuff. Like, I would definitely, definitely, definitely give ascending sets a shot um, in your programming. It could be on high rep stuff. It could be on, you know, like mid rep range stuff. But I think that there's a, there's this innate capacity to recover. And I, like I said, I've seen just so often, it's like, you just surprise yourself and you're like, oh shit, like I'm that strong. Like, you know, you know, Najee, you know, Najee. Mm -hmm. So Najee, if you're listening to this, like, you have ascending sets in your squats, you have ascending sets in your deadlift. And like, I can't count the number of times during nationals prep where it was just like, Oh, we're going to keep adding weight to the bar. Like that's fucking crazy. So. Yeah. You warm up. I think especially for women, the confidence thing is so huge and getting that production. Whereas like if you just wrote out the specific percentages or the actual prescribed back down work, it just wouldn't be nearly as high. And, you know, we're looking at women's recoverability or, um, you know, kind of how they handle some of that deadlift stress or maybe squat stress and they can tolerate it multiple times a week. Maybe you don't necessarily do 
you know, ascending sets twice a week or something like that. But maybe you have one day where it's ascending sets and then you may have like a second day where it's like prescribed, or I'm sorry, like a, a pre-written like four uh, or RP4 or RP6 or I say four reps in reserve typically, yeah. but um, you have like four, four sets of four at that, right? And that first day is just accumulation of so much work. And then if they're not feeling quite as strong, obviously on that later session, then they can kind of stay within that range. And again, they're very good at, repeating those sets yeah yeah that reminds me just i think this is a good uh coaching note to even talk about just in general because you're talking about um just kind of observing what they have the capacity for and how you know if you just wrote things in it might just be too low going back to the girl that i coach courtney and talking about her capacity for you know just being able to rep out ridiculous percentages if you're a coach i think that it's worth, you know, you could take whichever approach you want to this and, and chance you'll understand what I'm saying when I, when I get to it in a second is that, you know, when you start working with someone and you're not entirely sure just like how they move, how they respond to certain rep ranges, there's like, you could go one of two directions with this. It's like you could prescribe a percentage for a given rep range and then have them, you know, assign the RPE to it. And obviously if you're the coach, you're watching and you'll see what the RPE is. Or you go the other way around and you just have like an RPE cap and then you see what weight they select. And it's like, as a coach, you kind of have to evolve to the feedback you get there because, you know, most of your lifters are going to kind of just fall into the middle of the bell curve when it comes to their response to these rep ranges. And you'll be like, okay, like, yeah, just take whatever, whatever's there on the day. Like it's not, there's nothing noteworthy about the loads that they end up selecting for that day. But if you are someone like Courtney, where I write, you know, three by eight at, I don't know, 67%, 70%. And you look like you could do a set of 20, right? It's like, whoa, yeah. like this is not the percentage I'm going to keep writing in your program. Like this makes absolutely no sense. Let's each week, we just kind of incrementally add. And I remember that when I first started with her, when I noticed that first week was like, okay, this is easy. I was like, let's, let's increase the percentage. And then the next week it was the same thing. And then let's increase the percentage. And it got to the point where we just kept adding to the point where we got pretty much where I am, where it's like anything below 75% for eights is just not significant for her at all. So that is one, you know, one path to getting there. And then the opposite would obviously be like what I said, you just, you know, prescribe the RPE and then you get the number and you're like, Oh shit. Like that's way higher of a percentage than than I had anticipated. And then, you know, you don't have to change anything in the, in the actual writing there if, it, if you're just going for RPE, but like now you're just aware of the, the like how much of an outlier that, that rep strength actually is. And that might influence your programming going forward because that might influence how that second squat day looks. So that might influence percentages on a, on a separate day. That might influence how long during the prep you keep the high rep stuff in. Because if you're that good at it, right? It doesn't really make sense to like, you know, make these drastic changes where the rep ranges are coming down at this like linear precipitous rate because shit, if, you, if you're, that's the thing. It's like, if you're really good at reps, like that good, chances are you're not just like flying through a set at 80%. Like there's a, there's a, there's bar, the bar speed bottleneck where like things kind of start to slow down and you're just really good at repeating it which means that proportionally you you're not as good at singles, right? So it's like, if you start to feed those rep ranges down, eventually you kind of converge to this middle point where like you suck at what you're doing. 
Like you're not good at this rep range. Even if you're really, really good at reps that are this high, it's like you're going to get to a certain rep, rep range where you're just not that good at it. And it's not worth your time because you, you might only be working with like a tiny, tiny bit more than you were with the higher rep ranges. But now you're just like, you're not getting the volume in. You're not, you know, um, your recovery patterns are not the same because of it. Like it's crazy. It's, yeah. it's, it's tough a lot. There's so many, like these types of discussions that we're having these topics um, within, you know, females training and comparing it to, to men. Um, and I just keep hearing all the female side and like, we keep talking about it. I'm like, Oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. <laughs> every single thing, <laughs> every single thing. Like, you know, today I did sevens with 245, like on squat, mm -hmm. that's like 78%. <laughs> And, and that's not typical. Like, right. If I, if I were to give that to, you know, any other male training, they would burn out pretty, pretty fast on it. Right. Or if I gave them three sets of seven, you know, at an RP based set, they can push it. They'll mentally get themselves maybe on week one or week two, and they will quickly, you know, just lose all that momentum that we're trying to gain. Whereas yeah. like women, again, they just can't recover. And, you know, some women are a little bit more on that higher end, maybe not quite as much. Um, but they can handle it, man. And it's like, it's, it's sad for me to see a lot of women getting trained like men and they'll kind of fall into the same, you know, patterns that men would do. And then they just don't make progress because they're not quite there at that level yet where mm. these women can handle this. And it's like, in order for them to get to, you know, from an intermediate to an advanced level lifter, they have to advance into that category of pushing, you know, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah, man. And it's just like the bottom line is it's, it's, this is like a results driven profession or a results driven, uh, field like men, you know, male, female, it doesn't fucking matter. Like if someone is showing me that they merit a certain style of training, like that's what I'm going to do. Like I have, uh, a Tomu who's an 83 kilo lifter. You, I think you know who uh, mm -hmm. Tomu is, but he's this 83 kilo lifter lives out in California. Um, he used to be coached by Brad Cooliard, Brad Cooliard, you're the fucking man. I love you. You're an amazing dude. However, and I had this discussion with Brad, you know, after the first meet that I ended up doing with the Tomu, like Brad's coaching style is like a very like high set count, like pretty sub maximal, um, layout, right? Like you'll see a lot of like six by threes from Brad and six by twos that like leave a decent amount of reps in the tank. And I remember when a Tomu came to me, you know, he had reported, you know, in the, in the blocks prior to starting prep is like, I feel really, really strong. Like I'd hit these rep PRs and then we'd kind of transition into prep and things would just kind of get flat. And, you know, we would interpret it as fatigue because my numbers were going down, but then you, you start the taper and it just doesn't, it doesn't show back up. Right. And when he came to me, it's like, if I didn't have the experience I had with like the female lifters that I've worked with or like new stories of, lifters like you, for example, it's like, I would never know that the solution to that was this more quote unquote female style of training where Otomu now on like pretty much all three squat days does like high rep work. Um, like his, his day one is like, it's anywhere from like eights to tens. And then his middle day is like fives to sixes. And that middle day never really like drops down. Like in theory, you could be like, okay, we could make that day, you know, triples or doubles or fours and just like, you know, marginally increase the, the percentage of the one RM while still keeping the exertion low. 
Um, but we don't do that. And then like his day three is like a single or a top set and then like high rep back downs. And I mean, his, I think his best meet squat was like 212 when he came to me. Um, the first meet that we did together, I think he very quickly hit like 220 and then the next one was 227. And I think this past nationals, he hit 240. Um, and it's just been like this, you know, now I think we're going to have to really work for it because we've been working together for over a year now. But the initial gains, it's not like, you know, and like I said, I think, you know, Brad, you're, you're a phenomenal coach. And I think that a lot of what we saw was not necessarily like just this massive, massive increase in strength or gain in muscle. It's just that we knew how to retain it longer and keep it going, right? Like there's definitely a, a progress component to it that took him to, you know, the 240 height. But in that 220 to 227 range, it's like the rep PRs he was hitting, you know, under Brad are not too far off from the rep PRs he was hitting, you know, when we started together. It's just that we kept all of that in so much longer that that peak or that height of top end strength just stuck around. And it's, it's such a, and I've, I've talked about this so many times, but it's just such a uh, not by the books concept because we have this, you know, like textbook definitions of periodization and what specificity is and what we need to do to keep it is like the antithesis to that. You'd be like, this shouldn't work, but it, it literally fucking does. Okay, I have like a, a couple questions that I think can be like super, um, super clear for people to, to understand this, I think. And it depends on how you answer, right? So with Otomu, mm. was he going up in body weight or like any period where he was, when, when you, he was doing Brad's training where it's like six by three and he's light, uh, lesser volume sets, but more strength-based sets. Yep. Was he in a pr- period where he was gaining weight, do you know? No, no, he's, he's always been in an 83. I think he's kind of always sat in like that 187 to like 190 range. Okay. Cause those, so people that are in a weight gain or gaining to a next weight class, typically regardless of what kind of like, if we're saying it's a type a male or a type B male, like if I'm saying like me in terms of how I respond to training that like just a poor responder to training. So we need more training if that's the route we want to go with in this line of thinking is that for Otomu or any of these other athletes, if they're just in a strength-based or a more typical um, approach, then they can gain and, and everything's fine. And then once they're leveled out or at a, like almost at a standstill with whatever weight class they're at, then you can, okay, say, Hey, we have to go into our type B path. And that's the only way we're going to get solid, consistent progress. And, it, and hey, maybe it's just because you, you don't respond as well to training as other, as other men do, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Do you follow? Yeah. Do you follow no, me? No, absolutely. No, I totally understand what you're saying. Because I think maybe this could just be, I mean, not as reductive as this, but like women obviously are in that type B, most of them or a lot of them, and it ends up being that way, right? Where maybe if women are going up a weight class, it, it is something where they can do almost the minimum effective dose and almost the strength they set or st- sets and in, in, um, like kind of progression. And it's very easy. It's very predictable. And they just follow into this type A type of um, path, right? Yeah. I mean, I could, I could see that being the case, right? Because if you're gaining weight, that's just a more anab- anabolic state to be existing mm-hmm. in, right? So anytime right. that you're gaining weight, your response to training, I mean, within reason, your response to training is going to 
theoretically be heightened, right? So like we, I think we talked about this on the podcast that we did um, with Aiden, where it's like, as you're gaining weight, like the, the window of things that can get you stronger just kind of opens up a little bit. Yeah. And you can just train in a more like textbook style of, of training. And maybe your periodization model can feature like different uh, skills or qualities being trained throughout the year rather than really having to like hone in on this one thing. So I could definitely see that being the case where like just if you were a female lifter gaining weight, that that kind of like opens up that quote unquote anabolic window and um, enough to be into this type A type of yeah, no, range. Yeah. Where, for the most part, I don't see a lot of very, and if we're looking at the top percentage of women, I don't see a lot of them doing very well or making consistent progress unless they're going into that B range, right, where they're doing a lot higher, you know, closer to their ceiling, essentially, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's, so this is, this might be a, to, this might be a complex thing to mention on this podcast. So if you're listening to this, bear with me, but I think that this is something I've thought about so intensely and something that I want to talk about at some point when I'm, when I'm giving seminars. But if you're familiar with like the dose response graph of volume and progress, it's kind of shaped like an upside down U. If you don't know what this mm-hmm. is, just, just Google like Eric Helms dose response curve or upside down U curve for volume and progress. And you'll see it kind of has this upside down U shape where there's this original linear component, which just refers to the fact that if you are not training, you're not going to make progress. And then as you train, you kind of make this proportional progress, you make this progress that is proportional to the increase in volume, right? And then eventually there's this inflection point where the curve starts to turn over, where you're still making more progress, but the rate of progress starts to go down. Eventually we reach the peak of the graph, the top of that upside down U, which basically tells us like, okay, this is the the optimal area at which we should be training, right? And then you could theoretically do more volume past that where you are still making progress. You still are making progress, but the rate of progress is now decreasing again, meaning that this is not the optimal area to train. You know, maybe for a short-lived period of time, you can train here and then pull back, you know, your training volume and see, you know, this marginal increase in, in whether we're talking hypertrophy or strength or whatever, And then eventually, if you did so much, the curve would fucking tank down to the x-axis and you would start to regress, which would be like genuine overtraining. But the thing that I've thought about so many times is that, you know, every every person, again, this is like a kind of an abstract concept, like there's no sense in trying to actually like plot this for somebody, but everyone's upside down U-curve is shaped differently, okay? And what that means is that someone's upside down U-curve could be longer in the beginning, meaning that they can just, they have a higher base for, for volume in general, where they can just do more, right? And it's going to take them needing to do more in order to reach quote unquote, what's optimal, right? So you think about like a female lifter where it's like, you know, if I have to move across the X axis all the way to 10, 15 sets of squat to, to be in the range of what is optimal for my progress, right? That might mean that I see this like stretched out version of the graph compared to, I don't know, Bob Matthews, who only <laughs> has to do like, you know, uh, uh, like a couple high bar sets on the day one squat and then like a single or a triple on the day two squats, right? Like that curve reaches its peak very early along the x-axis, right? A similar thing to that is like the rate of drop off going back the other way, meaning that 
if we look at where we're at at the top of that curve and saying this is the optimal training volume for this person, there are some people who are going to be able to pull back and do less and maybe be within like a comparable or like adequate strength range or performance range while doing 20%, 25% less overall work. But then there are some people where you make that incremental change to the left and start doing less and things tank. tank. Like things drop super, super hard. And it's just, it's such a wild concept to think about because it's like that, that upside on you, that graph, you could theoretically just like plot this for every lifter, plot this for all of their lifts. And I've said this in the mentorships that I've done with the coaches who do these one-on-one calls with me. It's like, if you think about someone's training from this perspective, I feel like you are just at like such an advantage. Like you will, you will be able to coach anybody. You'll be able to like predict things more often. It's like, if you're thinking within the reference frame of like this lifter's squat has like a curve that kind of looks like this. And like, we're sitting at optimal right now, but if we pull back too much, like if that's the kind of the abstract picture or thought in your head, when you're going through appropriate dosing and peaking and figuring out like mentally where this lifter is at, like, shit, I, I shouldn't have even said that. Dude, this is so, no, 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 no. This was so perfect. The way you, you phrased this, because we've had this talks about this for years, like me and you, you know, about the first time where I said, okay, I was going to, do no taper into a meet and all that kind of stuff and really just push it all the way up and kind of linear ramp up because it's not worth the risk in drop off, right. In getting into the meet. Yeah. If it's predictable and you're making very good progress, especially if you're not capped out at the max level of a lifter, you are right. You're only two meets in three meets in cool. You know, write it out, keep going, dude. And and the way you're saying it, it is the risk reward for coaches right? Like you don't want to screw your athletes, you know, over, you want them to do well into the meet period. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we see a lot less of like the, the like old school, like DUP, like overreach, overtrain, big taper style of training. Like I remember when I worked with Joey, there was a period of time where I was like, bro, take me to the escrow zone. Like, let's go to the escrow zone and just fucking like tank me during prep because i I would bet of the, I don't know how many people listening, maybe like 1% of you, 2% of you will know what I'm talking about. But I remember seeing videos of guys like Ryan Doris, like grind out like the most grueling, like 600 pound single a week out from the Arnold and then hit like 644 at like RP eight and a half, RP nine on meet day or lane when lane used to be on like four days a week squat, three days a week deadlift. And I think a week out from uh, IPF Worlds in 2016, he, he took like 590 on squat, like as his last single. And then he hit, what was it, 661, 666, mm-hmm. whatever the hell it was for that at the time was a, was a world record. Um, so that, that approach was, I think, more common among like the, the higher level lifters and coaches, but it's just, it's so risky. Like I would much rather nowadays just like, find that like what I believe to be optimal volume, optimal uh, like rep range zone for each lift and just like see these like steady increases or like matched performances from week to week and then matched subjective feedback, meaning that like the lifter feels like comparable fatigue week to week so that we know that there's not like this massive drop off coming where, you know, 
you're, you're manipulating volume or intensity in a way where, you know, you get to a week out and they're like, Oh, I feel like fucking destroyed. It's like that happens sometimes and you have to adjust. Like you hopefully have the skill set as a coach to make the appropriate changes. But I think it's just so much nicer, so much more peace of mind, so much more predictable when like you can have this approach of athletes kind of feeling the same or slightly better week to week. And as you're increasing the RPE, the weight on the bar is going up and you know, you're not making any sort of intentional, you know, fatigue debt to, to pull them out of because that approach could work, but it, if it doesn't, you know, it, it usually fails pretty badly. Yeah. And thinking about this, I think it, that style is also conducive for burnout. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's very, very mentally draining on the athlete to have to go through that every time. Oh yeah. I mean, I've, I've done that and I'm out of my mind, so it, it kind of is okay. But the vast, vast, vast majority of people cannot handle that. Like there are people who can't handle just like sucking at a random point in training. If like every <laughs> prep you ever had to do, you were just like eating shit and, and felt like garbage and, you know, saw seven, 10% decrements in performance. It's like, mm-hmm. it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, if you, if you've seen it work before, that's the thing. It's like, you need to, that trust needs to be so fucking strong to be able to do that. Like when I, when I worked with Joey, for example, like I, like I had immense, immense trust in, in what he was doing because every meet that I ever did, I felt as strong as I possibly could. So to me, it didn't matter. And it was almost expected that I would have these, these points during the tail end of prep of just being really, really weak. Um, and it's like, if you don't have that prior data to suggest that that's okay, it's going to be just mentally so draining, so, such a mind fuck. But the problem is the only way that you get to the point of having that data is by doing it in the first place. Yeah. And I've, yeah, I mean, there are some lifters I used to do that with. It's just not a, an approach that I really take anymore, I would say. And there are some lifters that are, you know, almost set up well to do that based off their training. Maybe they're in a caloric surplus, you know, maybe they're filling out a weight class, you know, those lifters, you know, maybe you can actually run that, you know, and it will not be as risky. Um, And there are just some lifters that are, you know, more um, predisposed to, you know, handling things more in a, in almost a linear ramp up, right. That's not necessarily as aggressive. So there are different, different ways to do it. I just think for me personally, I don't want to gamble on an athlete's, you know, meet results being okay, 110% or maybe 75%. <laughs> yeah, dude. No, absolutely. It, uh, it reminds me, I'm sorry, Aiden, but I remember when I did the TSS meet with you, February, 2021. Yeah. <laughs> February, 2021, he squatted the, and this is Aiden, you're just weird, man. Your, your fatigue patterns make no sense, but I remember I want to clarify, I was not coaching you at the time, so I'm not, I'm not assuming responsibility for this at all. But you squatted a teen uh, American record of 600, and then you were supposed to open with 661 on deads, and you failed your last warm-up in the warm-up room. And you're just like, all right, let's, let's call it a day. Um, like that is the, the kind of – that's obviously an extreme version of it, and Aiden is definitely – you're in, you know, Aiden, if you're listening, you're an extreme case – but that's the kind of like shit that you just, you never, ever want to risk in, uh, on an athlete's meet day just to, you know, prove a point or like, you know, feel like you, you, you got it down to a science. It's like, no, don't, don't use them as a guinea pig. 
Yeah, it, it's so volatile. And especially if this is like maybe your first or second prep with an athlete, it's like that's not the time to gamble, right? Maybe it's like a local meet they do and then they're going off to nationals. We're not yeah. going to gamble on that at nationals. No, yeah. we'll do it at some random local meet maybe. And then we'll take that data and use it for a bigger meet. Maybe. Yeah. Dude, I love, I love my lightweight lifters though, who peak like super heavies. I don't know if you have any of those, but I have <laughs> this, the complete opposite. Dude. Yeah. Literally the exact opposite. The, I have, so I have one lifter in Texas. I'm just going to keep naming my lifters. I have my lifter, JJ, JJ Ortiz in Texas. This dude peaks like he's 350 pounds and it makes no fucking sense, dude. I've done probably like six meets with him or so, something six, seven meets, I think. And consistently, 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 whatever he hits on squat in training, he's good for like another 10 kilos, 12 <laughs> kilos sometimes. Bench is like two and a half to five. Deadlift is like seven to 10. Like it just... Every prep, I, the first time he squatted 200 in comp, his heaviest squat of prep, I think, was like 182. And it was hard as shit. Is he a very, like, a technician? Is he, you know? No, dude. No? Okay. Not at okay. all, man. Yeah. It's so wild. Like, he's just, <laughs> like, you know, he's like, I'd say he's like an intermediate level lifter. Like, right now, I think his squat is like, the next time he competes, he'll probably squat like 210, 212 bench. He has a good bench. His bench, he's a 74 or 75, I guess. His bench is like 165, 170. And then he'll probably pull like 250 to 260, right? Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. Like he will, and I remember the first meet I did with him too, where he told me like, yeah, I usually, I usually do pretty well on meet day. Like, you know, whatever I hit in train, and I'm like, and you're like, uh-huh, sure, sure. I was like, okay, but, you know, this is the training data, so this is all I have to go off of. You know, this is what I, what I think you're going to be capable of hitting. Like, I'll leave the door open for this plan A, you know, if you're feeling really, really strong, but, like, this is what I want you to take. And, like, he just blew everything out of the water that first meet. And then the second meet, I'm like, okay, like, I believe what he's saying, but maybe this was a fluke. Like, I'll leave the door open again for these ambitious numbers, but I don't want to, like, you know, back him into a corner and then the same shit happens and the next meet the same shit happens same shit happens so it's just i don't know how or why that that happens um but yeah, i mean dude dude okay i have a couple things one that i i wanted to get to i didn't want to lose my train of thought yep. um we we tend to see like the technicians that you know super you know maybe um wide sumo you know maybe their bench is super super high arch, we tend not to see, you know, those huge, huge, you know, super compensation effects yep. in, in the comp. Yep. Um, and a lot of times that ends up being women, right, as well. Yep. So typically, you know, if we're going with this framing, it also kind of follows this, this whole path here. So unless you are a very, um, even then, right, like even maybe a little bit bigger girls, still like it's still not as much right as like a, as a guy would, would super compensate right and it's a lot of times it's all these same kind of frames in you know their technique their rep range the amount of work they can handle where if we reduce some of these things it's such a quick drop off so i did want to make sure that was a point um man shit what's the other one i was going to say there was, there was what About, what was it about your lifter, the specific lifter? I'll let you, here, this is what we'll do. There's two things that I, and I was going to let you finish, 
I forgot. This is okay, what go we're going to do right now. Tune mm-hmm. out everything I'm about to say because I'm speaking to the listeners. You think mm-hmm. on this because I want to respond to what you just said. Uh-huh. Um, exactly what you're saying when it comes to the technical aspect is like just 100% spot on. Um, so for people listening, you know, you obviously all, I think people love to find like either things elite level lifters or coaches say, or comparable leverages among elite lifters to compare themselves to where they say, okay, like if this lifter's doing this, then maybe I should be doing this. Like if you are a, and I'd say it more particularly applies to like bench and deadlift is like, if you are like a very high arch bench presser, it's like, there's no taper. Like there really isn't like, it just doesn't, it doesn't fucking exist. Like whatever you, however good you feel in training is probably the best you're going to feel on meet day. And then 100%. You know, the other, the other factors of, you know, what bench you're on, how the quality of your paws, all that stuff can obviously dictate, you know, where that goes as well. Um, but you're not going to see that, that super compensation effect, quote unquote. And even if you are experiencing like acute fatigue throughout the week, like, Oh yeah, my pecs are sore. Like my arms are sore, you know, whatever, like, that is all a, all of those, all of those experiences are present during your best training and performance, right? Like within the training week where you hit your all time best bench, like those are all things that you're experiencing all the while. Right. So to it's, it's not as simple as like, Oh, if I can get rid of that feeling via volume reduction, like I should be stronger. It's like Mm -hmm. going back to that upside down U curve. It's like, there's just this level of stimulus that just kind of needs to be present. And if it's not there, you're not going to see your highest level of performance. So don't, don't construe this, misconstrue this fatigue as like a, as, as something that's inhibitory. Yeah. um, Necessary. Necessary. So a lot of times it's necessary. Yeah. I mean, dude, I remember, I remember preps that I've had where like, you know, my best squat days I'll come into my legs are just like a little bit sore. And it's like, you know, despite that feeling, I will have a a PR set on squats or I'll hit like an all time best squat. And I think like the, the more conventional wisdom or like the way that people would nocebo themselves is like, I'm sore, I'm fucked. Like today's going to go really poorly. And I think you, you're in the game long enough. You talk to the right, excuse me, you talk to the right people and you kind of learn to just ignore those things. Like, I think it's like a fine balance of like managing your expectations, but also just like not giving like, knowing what to not give so much fucking credit to, right? Like a lot of times, like, like the saying, like how you feel is a lie kind of rings true a lot of the time. Like I pay, I'd pay far more attention to like the actual factors that go into things. Like, did I sleep enough? Was, has my diet been on point? Like the things that you actively are, are doing or not doing rather than just like I'm sore today or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then like going back to the deadlift thing, it's like, if you're a, you know, you could pull really, really upright and you just have like a really like seamless wedge. Like I think of all the like the lanky USAPL juniors who just have like really, really strong deadlift leverages. And they're like, oh, like I hit this PR in a volume block. Like once we taper, it's over. And then it's like they pull five kilos less on meat day or some shit. It's just like that. That's true with me too. You know, some of my best deadlifts are in training after like five sets of squat. And then I deadlift eight. 852 is like my best. And it was done after like a four by five and five by four with 260 on squatter or yeah. 573. And it's like, you know, if everything else is perfect on game day with all these other variables accounted for, maybe I have a plus 1% on that. Yeah. Realistically, when it's, you know, this specific refined movement and everything is, is, you know, the stars aligned essentially. Yeah, maybe. Um, 
the, the one thing that I remembered that I wanted to bring up was your athlete where he's like, oh yeah, coach, you know, like I'll super compensate. I'll like come in perfect. And, you know, I'll just feel like much stronger. And you're like hesitant. You know, what I do typically is I always tell them, I'm like, okay, like we're going to, you're going to kind of meet in the middle here and you better go nine for nine, everything be perfect. And if, if that's the case, then great. I'll take everything that you say next time. And we'll, we'll put it on the, on the, on the bar, right? Like I'll take exactly that super compensation effect, but you got to prove it to me first. Yep. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have, I've had that with meats. I've had that just with gym lifts where a lifter is like, I know I can hit this. And I'll just like jokingly, like they know that I'm going to get mad if they miss, but I'll jokingly be like, if you hit it, I'm fine. But if you don't, you're dropped. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. because I think, I think there's like that element of it that you kind of, it, it just reminds me of like playing like actual sports where the coach is like, not always like nurturing, right? It's just kind of like you, you push them like a, like a father or a coach, right? And it's just like, all right, like fucking show me something then. Like, let's, yeah. let's see what you have, right? Make a play, make a play. Yeah, exactly. Make a play. So that was, that was the case with JJ. Like he, he's had one meet under me that he hasn't gone nine for nine. And um, he got a little, he got a little too cocky his last meet, which he knows. He knows that because uh, I mean, there's just like a bunch of random shit. His lifts were like looking kind of janky and uh, he was insisting that it wouldn't matter whatever. He was, he's a good sport about it. We, we fixed all the issues, but, um, yeah, man, it's, it's, uh, it was, and that's the thing. It's like you, you, especially with like a newer lifter, you know, you as a coach have to decide when you value a lifter's feedback and when you don't. (laughs) Right. And it's like, kind of, you know, it's kind of fucked to say, right. But like, you're the, you're the expert, you're the one being paid to do this job. And it's like, I kind of have to, you know, first of all, like evaluate the lifter at the start and be like, all right, like, do you have, like, do you understand the experience that you're interpreting? Because a lot of people interpret things incorrectly. And there, there are plenty of times where an athlete says something to me, like, they'll be like, oh, you know, my CNS was fried or something. like, And I just have to like, I just, <laughs> to let things, I just have to let things go in one ear and out the other. Because <laughs> like, there, there truly are times where like lifters just, you know, they don't know what they don't know. So they just completely like misevaluate or misinterpret what it is that they're experiencing. And if they have the, the, the personality to want to, um, you know, micromanage or inject their own opinion into how things should go training wise. I mean, that's always a headache, right? Like I have, you know, like David Shelton, for example, I've worked with, I've worked with David for a while and, and David knows he's a little, a little hard headed, a little set in his ways sometimes, but he's had a lot of his own training experience, a lot of his own coaching experience. And, there have been times where he's like, Hey man, like if we go back to the block that we did this, like this felt really good. We did this really well. And then I'll go and look through what we've been recently doing. If it hasn't been going well and I'll be like, Oh shit. Like, yeah, you're right. Like let's, let's kind of regroup and, and try to, to, to refine upon that old strategy that we used. And like, I don't know, eight times out of 10, eight and a half times out of 10, like it, it works out favorably. Um, but then, dude, I've had experiences where lifters just, they think they know so well, like what they're supposed to do. And it's just like, it, it's not even that your, your assessment is, you know, what, or the conclusion you're coming to is necessarily wrong. It's like, you just don't even, you don't even under, you don't even know your own premise. Like, you're just like, you're just off the mark. Like maybe you, you converge to the right conclusion, but you came from the totally wrong place about it. And it's just like, you know, that's always a, that's always a tough one. 
but I, I like giving them the opportunity to prove me wrong. Of course. And, and then let them do it. Right. And then like, I'm, I'll tell, I'll tell them, it's like, Hey, make me look stupid. Make me oh, yeah. look stupid for only allowing you to do this. And then once you do that, yes, sir, let's, let's do what you want, sir. Let's, let's, let's yeah. go, you know, whatever. Right. Oh dude, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, that's the, that's the experience where you, you know, you feel you do like a risk calculation in your head as a coach. Like, all right, is this, is this one, is it, is what they're saying at least feasible or plausible? And then can this be a good learning lesson? I'll, I'll never forget. So my dad is a very, you know, my dad came to America when he was 12 years old, like very like traditional. Well, I would actually, I wouldn't say traditional cause he's like very, what's the word I'm looking for? He's, he's very, uh, I'll come back to this part, but he is a, you know, my dad was born in Colombia, like very, um, like old school kind of values. Um, and just like very like, like masculine. Right. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a kid, I was four years old and we lived, we lived in a thousand Oaks, California at the time. We had a, we had like a pool out back and there was, it was like my, it was like my birthday party or some sort of gathering where we had like a bunch of family friends over and there were, you know, my, my dad's friends, you know, my mom and dad's friends, kids who were like a little bit older than me and they would like get in the pool, right? They'd jump in the pool. They didn't have their life vest on and they were just swimming. And of course me, I've always been super stubborn, like just a real pain in the ass. I was like, I want to get in the pool. I don't need, I don't need my life vest. Like I want to swim. I want to swim. And my mom was just like, no, like you can't do that. You can't do that. Like you're, you know, it's not safe, whatever. Like just telling me like, no, you have to wear your life vest to get in the pool. And I threw a big fit, like huge temper tantrum over it. My dad was like, you know what? Fine. Go get in the pool. Take your life vest off. Take, take your life vest off and jump in the pool. I jumped in the pool. I fucking sank straight to the bottom, sucking in water, like fucking, you know, crying, screaming, clawing. Obviously, you know, my dad's standing right by, pulls me up mm -hmm. out of the water. And he's like, you're going to wear your life vest now? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And like, those are, those are the kind of experiences that sometimes you have to, you have to have in life, but you know, you have mm -hmm. to give your, your athletes those kinds of experiences as well. Cause it's just like, you know, like you said, if you, if they prove you wrong, that's, I think a great experience because they get a bump in confidence. You get closer to the clarity of what it is an athlete should be doing. But if they're wrong, right. They're just like, okay, like I believe more in you now. Right. So that's, that strengthens the trust between the coach and athlete. Yeah. What's, what's the phrase? It's like you give them enough rope to hang themselves by, <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I like that with, I mean, with your dad, there's like, that's, that's how you do it. Yeah. Like a hundred percent. Like, okay, let, let's see what you got. Yeah. Show up. Yeah, dude, there was <laughs> my dad, my dad actually, like we talk about this story a bunch and he feels so bad about it. I don't really, I don't care. Not this experience. I'm about to name uh, another. Okay. I was like, really? No, he feels so bad about this other one. I remember I was probably like, I don't know, eight years old, nine years old. And we had this, we had a summer house in the Poconos in Pennsylvania. And it was beautiful. Like, you know, just like very, like, we just spent a lot of time outdoors that I couldn't with, you know, where I lived in New York. Right. And we would play catch every day. Like we would play catch, you play baseball. Baseball was, you know, my life. Right. And we'd play catch. And I was getting to the age where I was like starting to get like pretty good at baseball. Right. And you start to get like, you want to be treated like an adult even though you're still a kid and I'm playing catch. And my dad is just like, just like lobbing the ball to me. Like he's just not throwing as hard as he can. And I'm like, 
throw it harder, throw it harder. And he would just get so afraid. So he'd like throw it a little bit harder, but I could tell that he was still just kind of dogging it. And I'm like, throw the ball harder. Like I can catch it. And he just, he's like, after enough throws, he's like, okay, like I believe that he can catch us. And he throws it as hard as he can. And he hits me right in the fucking nose. Oh. Yeah. And like, you know, he felt horrible about that. Like, obviously you don't want to, you never want to do that to your, to your kid. I remember <laughs> literally within hours of him doing that, he like ran to the like closest toy store and bought me like a Game Boy Advance SP, which like had just come out at the time. And he was like, I'm so sorry. Like, here you go. And I was just like, all right, I feel better now. But like, were you upset with him at that time? Like, no, what happened? Okay. I wasn't upset. Dude, I'm like the kind of person, like I was upset with myself. Like I was just like, I, I, I was like just sad and, and mad that like, I didn't even catch the fucking ball. You know what I mean? <laughs> and like, we'll talk about that story now. And he's just like, I felt so bad. Like I didn't want to throw it as hard as I could, but like, you just kept, you just kept, you know, pushing me to do it. And I thought that you could do it. And I was like, I don't even remember what it felt like to get hit in the nose. Like, don't even, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, you were catching it fine, right? Like, and you just like completely missed, you know, like he hit you right in the face. I mean, well, it, it kind of, it made some contact with the glove, but yeah, I mean, it, was, <laughs> <laughs> it, it softened the blow, but yeah, I mean, it was one of those things like, I, you know, I was fine catching the ball. I think it was just such a, you know, a, a stark difference between him intentionally throwing slowly and then him just fucking winding up. Cause like my dad is, you know, it, watch him throw, try to throw baseball now it's it's hilarious but like he's always been like you know uh, a you know was a multi-sport athlete growing up and like he played baseball like he he knows how to throw a ball right so like yeah you know it was yeah hey well you you got what you asked for so exactly exactly and we need that in life we yeah need that yeah of course <clears throat> no question there i mean that's like i think of all these like little isolated experiences like that and it's just like it it seems like such a like trivial thing that it's just like, Oh yeah, I got hit in the nose, whatever. But it's like, it, it just has like so much, it has so much uh, more like far reaching implications. Like you can just always extrapolate it to like some sort of like life lesson there. Right. It's like, I've had, I had so many experiences like that growing up with my dad or with coaches where it's like, all right, like fucking like prove, prove what it is that you're asking for. Right. Like show that you can show that you are capable of doing the thing that you want. And like, Sometimes you rise to the occasion, sometimes you don't. And, uh, you know, in either scenario, you grow from it, so. And as a lifter, right? Like, I, wanna, I want them to feel like I'm, you know, meeting them halfway, you know what I mean? Where I'm like, hey, yeah, of course, let's do it. You know, you want to, right? You understand the risk reward here. Yeah. Yes, coach. Okay, all right, then we'll do it. And then if you prove it to me, then great. I'm, I'm an idiot and that's fine. And I'll hold that L. I have no problem doing that. You know, yep. but until then, you know, we are going to go with my best, you know, uh, guess here because you're coming to me for coaching and not the other way around, right? Yep, exactly. So how do you feel <clears throat> with these female lifters that you've worked with now and kind of where we're getting to in powerlifting where you see the increased frequency, you see, you know, some of the more aggressive approaches? What have you done differently? Like you asked me kind of what, what I've done. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So there are the, the, one of the things that I've done differently, like we kind of already talked about, like with the ascending sets, mm -hmm. like just finding ways to use their own, um, like 
proclivities or strengths or whatever to enhance confidence, right? Like the ascending sets is a big part of it. Like, you know, repeat sets. I think I see like myself programming far more, right? Like paying attention to the data that they're giving you when it comes to like what they, uh, what they designate an RPE of a certain load to be or vice versa. And just kind of like moving your, you know, altering your individual like RPE scale for that lifter and, and, and kind of leaning into what percentages that that might entail. Um, and then, like I said before, it's like when you get data, that's like really an outlier like that, that also changes your, um, what's the word I'm looking at? It also changes your perspective on like, what like rep rep ranges might be successful for a lifter or like the duration of a block spent in a certain rep range, right? Which ultimately leads into like what you, you know, what you do to, to taper the athlete. Um, how I taper female lifters also has kind of, um, evolved where, and this is something I've talked about in general, where when you taper somebody like your, you need to understand what the intended goal is of a certain session and realize that the taper is about alleviating the stress, right? And you think about alleviating stress, it's like, okay, I'm thinking about like a a reduction in volume or or something along those lines. But a problem can arise if you like, in trying to change or reduce overall training stress or volume, you you like alter the the skill or, or purpose of a given day. And what I mean by that is like, let's say you have like a three day squat layout. And you have day one is like sets of eight. And then your day two is like, I don't know, um, like a three by five with like 70%, let's say. And then your day three is your, is your primary or your heavier day, whatever. Right. And you have those two squat days, the week of a meet. And that's like your, your, your taper days, right? The days that you're actually going to manipulate in order to get the desired result. Right. I think that there are some lifters where, you know, that middle day that we're talking about, if it truly is like serving that purpose of being like this lower intensity, lower percentage of one RM training session, you know, you might think in like a more primitive or earlier part of your coaching career, you're like, okay, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's three by five at 70%. So I'm going to reduce my volume and have them do like three singles at like 80% or 82% or like three doubles at the corresponding percentage that would match the RPE of that three by five, you're, you're altering that day's purpose and thus the response that the athlete gets from it. So while theoretically or mentally you're like, Oh yeah, it's, it's overall less workload. It's like you are now crossing an intensity threshold that this day has never crossed for them. And that can have unintended consequences in terms of how their third day of the week responds to that. So it's like, you have plenty of athletes where, you know, maybe you taper that first session of the week and then you don't do anything to that middle day. Or maybe that middle day, it goes from like a three by five to maybe like a three by three, but it's the same load, right? It's like you, you kind of have to understand like what the intended purpose is of each day. And I think that the more fickle an athlete's training responses, which again, usually kind of lines up more with like female lifters where it's just not as predictable. It's like, you can't have that like easy brute force approach to a taper that you maybe can with like, I don't know a super heavyweight on his conventional deadlift where you just take three singles at like 75% the week of, and they're chilling, you know, it's like, all right, this is easy. It's over, you know, just take some light shit and you'll be ready for meat day. Um, the next thing that I was going to mention, let me see if I can regather my thoughts here about this. Um, fuck. 
losing my train of thought here. Ah, <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, come on fill me in fill me in chance add, add something add something tr- i, I can we, we can move forward i i wanted to Let's give you move this. move forward move forward because you'll move forward and then it'll come to me it'll it'll come back and then i'll well, and then you learn what you were saying okay <laughs> <laughs> okay so what about like technique right because obviously you know how someone responds is going to be you know relatively speaking you know dependent on their technique you know, say, for example, if they're a squat, you know, specialist or fiend, almost like, you know, turbo tip. I love using her as an example um, because of, you know, how extreme her stance and style and everything is, right? Someone that can push intensity, that can push volume, that has a very crammed in, almost very technical um, looking squat, you know, someone like that is going to have a different response in terms of like how they actually, you know, handle a taper or how they handle, you know, drop off and intensity or volume is going to be completely different than somebody that's, you know, a super wide squatter as a girl that's, you know, maybe lighter that, you know, has her hands out here versus super close like Tiff, right? Mm-hmm. Very, very different. And we've got to make sure we address that before, you know, we just say kind of as a blanket, hey, you know, this is how, you know, most lighter, you know, you know, 52 kilo girls handle this situation. Definitely is going to be different if you're, you know, very taxing on the hip flexors versus not, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's absolutely. Fuck, man. I'm trying to think. Of oh, here we go. Okay. So I think the biggest thing, and this is just for, for coaching in general, but I've just noticed more with, with female lifters because I've started, you know, as the years have gone on, I would say that for every like one female, one male lifter I've taken on, I've probably taken on like two male lifters because my, my female roster has just grown more in recent times. It's like my heuristics for female lifters have just gotten like way stronger right? Like this is, this is probably one of the, the single biggest like predictors of success as a coach. It's like when you take on an athlete, like do you have this memory bank of athletes that you've worked with who are shaped like them, who lift the way that they do, who have, um, you know, employed like similar training frequencies or whatever. It's like if you have something to draw from, um, you are going to like just, they're going to blow up. Like I think of like I, I did a, I did a case study for one of my mentorship calls a few weeks back on Najee. Um, because when she had come to me, she was just like, she was struggling with like all three lifts pretty much. Um, and I just remember like watching how she pulled and I noticed like, for example, when she was doing like just mindless sets of, I don't know, six to eight to whatever on deadlift, it's like, Oh, she's like relaxed she's using her legs, like there's just kind of this flow through the movement. But then when she's exposed to, you know, triples or doubles or singles, anything that that puts her over this daunting threshold percentage of your one RM, how she pulls changes, right? And if you're spending so much time pulling in that maybe scared or more tense mental state, right? It's like specificity doesn't mean shit. Right. Because your your perception or your your approach when exposed to, quote unquote, more specific loads is just a shittier style of pulling. Right. So when I see that, when I see just like how she's built and like how lanky she is and the capability to like really rep stuff out, I was like, okay, like 
one of the things that I know from like a, a, a variation standpoint, that's going to help you to just like be less like yanking on the bar and use your legs more is like a pause deadlift. So my initial approach was like, when we're loading anything considerably heavy, so like singles or something like that, like I will have you do pause deadlifts for this duration of time to really get you to learn to just be very gradual and relaxed and kind of stay in your legs. But like everything else is going to just be like high rep. And we're going to push the intensity hard on that high rep stuff. Like it's not going to be just like, you know, okay, you have like a little three by eight with 65% get in and get out. It's like, no, like I want this to be hard. I want you to have to be focused. I want you to be excited for these sets. And regardless of the fact that it approaches a high RPE, right? Like the first several reps are going to move fast because it's not, you know, 90% of your one RM and mentally your approach to a set that has that high of a rep count is going to be way more relaxed. So it's like, it's just this, this cycle that gets fed where it's like, you are more relaxed. So you're able to perform the lift better, but this is also what you respond really well to. So the load on the bar keeps going up and up and up. And then it gets to the point where like you're doing eights flowing through it with the same weight that like six weeks back you were doing for triples and you were tensing up like crazy for it because it was a, a lower rep set. So the bar speed was lower cause you just mm -hmm. weren't as strong. And then just like mentally your association with either that load on the bar, or the number of reps you were doing creates this like stiffness and it changes how you, you actually pull. So it's just a better quality and better result for what you're doing. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, with deadlifters that are built similar to me and Najee, that's typically what you find is that, you know, maybe it's just women or is it men as well, do you think? So, I mean, I definitely have a, a bit of a, a bias for sumo deadlift. Like I, I would say that I try to stay away from having like a style mm -hmm. of programming, right? Like I really try to um, just like respond to what the athlete gives me and try to find optimal but I do find a lot of the times when I have lifters who come to me that are sumo deadlifters and they are struggling, that a lot of the times they, are, they have not done like what I typically would program for sumo deadlift. Like I know that you are built very well for deadlift and your style of, of training your deadlift now is very different than I guess what I would say is like more typical of someone who's built like you. Um, but I would say like I've found a lot of success in um, – you know, a lot of that, of that higher rep stuff. Like it's, it's rare. It's not even rare. It's like almost improbable or impossible that you're going to see like someone who's built like Najee or you, or, you know, Andrew Ha, you know, doing like a fucking six by three or a six by four or a five by five on their sumo deadlifts. Like it's just that volume is just not, it's just not productive. It's like you, you <laughs> have, you have like, a capability to rep something that's so close to your one RM relative, maybe to mm -hmm. like someone who pulls conventional. Um, like the, this is, this is another thing. It's like your, every rep that you do has an associated um, stimulus to be extracted from it and an associated cost by way of fatigue. Right. And like when you're pulling sumo, for example, and you have this like, you know, uh, tendency to like have this really efficient pull and, and kind of flow through it, right? Like what ends up getting fatigued during a rep that like moves well is just like, it's just like a different set of muscles that ends up getting fatigued from something that's like heavier, 
right? And I think the reason that this is important is that like the distance traveled aspect of stimulus also plays a role where like if I can get, you know, three sets of eight in at, you know, 72% or above, let's say, and maybe that includes a top set, whatever. I'm just saying in, at, uh, as a minimum, like that, mm-hmm. you know, percentage range, it's like, I move at the, with the technique that I need to, I don't fatigue like a lower back, like disproportionately more that the per rep fatigue cost is like, you know, it's outweighing the, the stimulus, but then I'm also getting like the, the distance traveled aspect taken care of. Whereas like if I did a, you know, a four by four, maybe like per set, the distance traveled was just not enough to elicit hypertrophy or elicit an adaptation. And then like the bar speed starts slow from rep one. So it's just like, I'm already pulling in that. It's just, yeah. The way that, the way that I think about it with, when it comes to, to training, right. Is that we know, we know in, in like factually that the most specific reps that we can do are the ones that are moving slowly, but we're trying to create the highest contractile forces, right? We know the most specific thing is when we're recruiting as many high threshold motor units as possible, and we're trying to move fast, but we can't, and we're moving very slowly under heavy load, right? We know that that has the highest uh, carryover or, or direct, direct development of strength, right? So we could like plot that on a graph where it's like this rep can give us, you know, this much benefit per rep, right? But there's also a very high fatigue associated with that right and it's like we kind of have to figure out for each athlete like how are we going to fill our bucket right like are we gonna is this athlete capable of like doing 20 of these big high risk high reward reps and then we just maybe need a little bit more of like this lower stimulus stuff sprinkled in right but then there are some athletes where it's like okay they can handle one of these high risk high reward reps right but then like for each one that you at you tack on it's just like it's just disproportionately like way too much fatigue or the skill, the quality of the skill degrades and drops off really quickly. And then it's like, okay, for this athlete, maybe we just need more of those little hits, right? Like those like low risk, low reward reps that we can accumulate through these like, you know, higher rep, lower intensity sets where maybe per rep, the benefit is not as high, but we can just do a lot fucking more of it because the fatigue associated is lower. And then it's just like this bucket for this lifter just looks completely different. Like you know, some, some buckets are filled with like a lot of big fucking rocks and boulders and like a little bit of sand. And then like other lifters, they just like have like a shit ton of sand and maybe like one or two boulders be a way that I think about it. We think about deadlift. I mean, the way you phrase it for this type of build for an athlete, we think about it similarly, but I come at it at a different approach. And, you know, for me, right. Like you kind of say how different the way I do things. And for those that are curious, it's, like a lot of higher intensity work, um, but it may be a lot less volume than what anybody is used to. So that's typically what I would do. Um, and there's a reason why, like recently, especially, I've been trying to milk a little, like, again, I'm trying to milk as much of this out as I can in this particular period. And then when I kind of, this is my off season approach, right? And as you get closer to a meet, then I'll tend to go towards those, hey, maybe ascending sets, maybe get these volume sets, maybe, you know, the kind of the same thing with Najee, right? Where she's doing these, you know, um, less risk, more locked in and in the zone type of pulls where it's very easy, it's very repeatable, it's very confident. She's not overthinking it and not binding herself up or getting too tight. Um, it's worth it, right? Like you want a lot of those and more times to practice that and getting into that, that habit. And if you can do that repeatedly over and over and over again, 
by the time you get to the meet, you don't tense up and lock, lock into place and lose the positioning effects that someone like me or Najee would, would do, right? Yeah. And so it, it makes so much sense, right? And I tend to find myself as a long, lanky um, deadlifter out, outside closer or further away from me, bro, I feel like sometimes I don't even remember how to pull. Like I feel like a lot of times where like I'm overthinking this or no, I'm too t- tense or maybe I didn't, you know, put enough pressure against my belt, but okay, I want it to be relaxed. And there's a lot of these things that, you know, for athletes listening, these type of mental checks in your head, you know, are kind of representative by what you're doing, right? If you're not doing a lot of volume, it's very obvious that you would think like, oh, I'm kind of forgetting how to do it because you're just not doing that much, right? Like you, you go into it and you just practice it once. Okay, I'm done. And then, you know, maybe, you know, three or four days later, you do it again. You know, you come back to it and you're like, oh shit, like, okay, maybe it's this. And then maybe you overthink it for that top set that one time. Whereas if you have descending sets, it builds that repeatability, it builds that confidence, it builds all these good habits and it's automatic. It's like yeah. muscle memory at that point, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, what you were saying originally in describing the lower rep, uh, just high intensity, lower set count stuff that you do. I mean, that's like the, that's just, it's a component of like the analogy that I gave. It's like, that's you filling the bucket with like the boulders, right? Yeah. And like none of the sand because, you know, you're at a point now where like, you know, you need it sometimes, but it's like you're proficient enough where it's like the, 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 for a lot of lifters, the benefit associated with a lot of those little, I'll call them like little wins, right? Referring to those, those reps that are, you know, mm-hmm per rep, maybe not that expensive um, or valuable rather, but they're, they're cheap. They're easy to get, right? Like for a lot of lifters, that's going to be a bottleneck for them to get to the highest level. So they need to accumulate a lot of that. You at the point that you're at, I would say for, for at least a greater portion of your training year, that's not necessary. But what you said is, is a direct uh, indication that it is necessary at some points, meaning that mm-hmm. you forget how to pull sometimes. Yeah. Right? Like for me, the same shit happens to me. So when you first introduced this concept to me, maybe a year ago, um, I had brought it up to Steve because we knew that for me, like I could take a single once a week and then like do the high rep stuff and I'm good. Right. But we had always done like a, you know, a lot of like mindless volume almost where it was like, all right, like how many sets of eight have you done with 220 kilos, Sean? Like you've done this, you know, a million fucking times, right? Like, and we started to question like, okay, is this, is this really that important to have in there? So we've had really successful training blocks where it's like, I'll push one high rep top set on one day. And then the second day I'll push like the single and then the one high rep top set following it. And that feels really, really good. And then like, either I'll get to the end of that block or I'll get to the midway through the next block of trying to reiterate it. And I'll have the same like mental checklist where I'm like, my feet in the right place? Am I wedging correctly? Like you forget, despite the fact that you are exposing yourself to the most quote unquote specific reps that you could possibly do. And then we add back in that quote unquote meaningless, like low intensity volume and the skill acquisition comes back. Yeah. It's like mentally you should, you'd be like, you know, cause like, you know, you hear this all, all, you know, through like maybe some of the more like science based quote unquote, like strength training stuff where it's like, oh, you need to be above a certain threshold for like your form work to matter and whatever. And it's like, uh, I don't, I just don't know if that's true. 
Yeah, the the feeling of it being so routine and you don't have to worry about it is so good. It's yeah. such it's the best the best feeling as a lifter is when you don't even your your music's playing, you're going into warm-ups and you're not even thinking about anything. You forget you're and you're already at like your second to last warm-up and you're going to do your top set and I, I don't even feel like I thought about anything. That's the best feeling ever. And for me, when I'm self-coaching, you know, obviously, um me as an athlete, I'm like, okay, you know, it's fine if I don't remember how to deadlift right now when I'm, you know, 16 weeks out, when I get to eight and four, that's when I need to be in the zone. And it's difficult where like you can kind of kind of split your training up where like outside of comp, I'm a little bit more focused on building my quads, building my legs, building everything, you know, around, you know, just creating as much hypertrophy as I can. And that's usually pushing squat volume, right? And as you get closer to comp, I'm actually going to push or build into deadlift volume, which is weird, right? But you are doing those kind of mindless sets almost that is kind of just repeating the process and getting it down. And, you know, maybe you drop down the squat volume and you're playing this weird game where on, you know, anybody looking at this, you're like, what the fuck is going on? Why, are, why is your deadlift volume up all the way up here? And then, you know, your squat volumes down here at the very end, there's a lot of moving pieces, but for some people it can be effective in that way, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And like it's tricky and with, and like to go along with that, it's like squat is just like so much more of like a pure, like hypertrophy builder, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you think about it this way, it's like deadlift is very, you know, you're quote unquote built, you're building the deadlift muscles when you do deadlifts, you know, sumo deadlift and like hypertrophy rep ranges, but like the potential for hypertrophy from a sumo deadlift is just not as, as high as it is for a squat. And a squat is just a larger range of motion, right? Like with a sumo deadlift, you're not really getting any significant amount of hip flexion. You're not getting any significant amount of hip extension. It's like, you're, you're just so wide that the actual moment arms are very short, right? So with something like a squat, it's like the potential for hypertrophy and the increase in hypertrophy directly affects your squat, like much more meaningfully affects your squat than like the, the deadlift hypertrophy affects your pull. It's like the pull is just a little bit more like skill based, Right. And then we also know that there's, you know, maybe not much at the highest level, but there's some level of carryover between just like having bigger legs from squatting and quad hypertrophy to your deadlift. Right. So like as you're as you're making your way into comp, it's like you you you're still doing what is like optimal for for continuing to, to move the needle forward for squat. But like you said, it's like we need deadlift to feel automatic, you know, as we're coming into the competition. And I think that if you took the opposite approach in the off season and we're like, all right, like, you know, fuck my quads, right? Like fuck squat. Like I'm just going to, you know, build my deadlift up. I think it'd be very difficult to, to then reverse that path <laughs> right? and yeah. try to do the opposite going into a meet where you're just like, I'm going to crush my legs and, and, you know, try to hang on to my deadlift. But this is so different, right? If you are a conventional deadlifter and maybe your, your normal squat or maybe super wide squat we're playing a whole different game now because it's not necessarily about remembering how to pull and everything. It's more about like the stress management and fatigue aspect than really anything else. It's not very difficult to, to conventional deadlift. Sorry guys. Yeah, no, I mean, conventional <laughs> is, that's the thing I loved about pulling conventional all those years ago. It's like you get into meat, you get to the meat and you're just like, I can just get really angry and pull whatever I want. Yeah. Like that's the thing. And, and at chance, I know you and I have had this conversation before it's like, you know, and, and this is the, this is the, the, the con or the negative of being like technical on any lift. Like 
if you pull sumo or you bench with like a high arch or whatever, it's like, it's, it's much difficult. It's much more difficult to have repeatability. There's a smaller, you know, less room for error, but it's like people talk about like execution being, you know, so big in powerlifting and it absolutely is right. And maybe the, the people who lift with more quote unquote conventional techniques are just, you know, smarter or luckier that they can get away with it. But it's like, if you pull conventional, you don't have a big arch. Like it's not that hard to fucking execute. (laughs) It's just, it's really not hard. Like anybody can fucking do it. It's like when you have to worry about like a starting position being perfect on sumo or balance or like a touch point being good on a high arch bench. It's like, sure. It's the, it's the price that you pay because you, you had to employ those techniques to keep up. Right. So it's just how the game goes, but it's just more difficult. Like it's more difficult to go nine for nine when you're lifting like an idiot than it is when you just put your fucking feet together and just stand up with the bar. 100%. 100%. And I love, I, I try to get a lot of athletes that are kind of on the fence about like either sumo or conventional. I push them towards conventional if it's not clear that they're built, you know, for one or the other. Yeah. It's like way more repeatable. It's way more predictable in comp. You know, I know, you know, on paper, things are going to work out the way I anticipate them. It's not this gamble of, oh, techniques just didn't show up that day. Okay, well, you know, now we just kind of throw a whole, a whole meat away and essentially, right. If you miss two deadlifts, right. But on conventional, you know, I mean, grip issues are good. So yes. there's a lot of more predictable things. And I think in powerlifting, we, we want to, you know, weigh out the risk reward here where you're being optimized in terms of your technique versus just being consistent and high enough technique that it's very repeatable. And we can nail that. And the same with periodization, same thing with a lot of these strategies that we're talking about. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, I've pushed, I've pushed multiple lifters of mine to a closer grip bench recently. Like it's actually happened with, with three people that come to mind now where, you know, I think everybody just kind of feels they need to bench max grip. You know, they're just like, all right, this is, this is where I have to hold my, my fingers. And they, they assume that as they migrate their grip outward, that it's just going to be a better result. And sometimes it is, especially if you do arch because now the range of motion becomes a significant factor. But if you're not, that might not be the case, right? Because if you can, you know, if you just think about it in terms of proportions, right? If you have a massive, massive arch and your range of motion with max grip is, I don't know, fucking six inches. And then you take a medium grip and your range of motion is 12, 13, 14 inches now. It's like you reduce your range of motion by over 50%. But if you don't have a big arch and you bench with a max grip versus a close grip, you might go from... 20 inches to 22, 23. And then at that point, it's literally a, a like one sixth of a difference. And it's like, at that point, the range of motion reduction is not significant enough to outweigh like whatever muscular, like line of pull leverage based advantages that you're getting from this closer grip. Like you are going to be able to use your pecs better with that closer grip. There's no question. So yeah, I had, I had one lifter, He's a master's guy, um, but he, in the past couple of years, like we just, we've just been benching with a wider grip. Um, it just felt like easier on his, his body to do so, but we had been stuck on bench, like meet after meet, just like 152 or 155. Like just, that would always be where we finished on bench. Um, and recently, since it's post-nationals, I started putting in just like medium grip work, like both in lower and higher rep ranges. And he's just matching or exceeding everything on comp grip with that. And I was like, all right, like I have an, I have an easy answer. When you get to your single on Saturday, like 
take it medium grip. And he benched 160. And I'm just like, well, we have our answer. Like, that's it. We're moving forward with this. That is one of the good things about working with a coach for more than three or four meets through two meets, right? Is because you get to experience all these different things. And if you're resourceful, like you are, you know, you have the critical thinking to be like, Hey, you know, this didn't work. Let's try something different. Yep. And it's surprising how many people don't, don't think that way or can't think that like, Hey, this is clearly not working. Let's try something else. Yep. Um, and then you, you spend a year or two years, three years, doing the same similar things and not making any progress. And, you know, it's, it's, it's frustrating because like, if you're in that particular position that you don't have someone else to come in and be like, Hey, you should try this specific thing. It's like, maybe things are feeling good or maybe squat and deadlift are going well, but you're just not resourceful enough to, you know, make some of these more, again, critical line of thinking type of calls, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm coming, coming from, you know, experience, I, I you know, I, I kind of made this rant a couple of days ago, um, you know, about getting from an intermediate to an advanced level lifter um, and pe people not thinking like, hey, you know, I'm going to keep doing what's working, right? Or like what's, you know, around what's working, what's, what's work and not going into those ranges where, you know, I know me and you have talked about where, you know, when you get this advanced level lifter, you're going to try some unconventional things because a lot of times those higher level lifters, you know, need this specific weird thing in order to make progress. And, you know, if you want to get to that range, you have to be able to do that. Yeah. You see some of the stuff that I've been, I put out about it. It's no, I did. I did. Okay. And it's, it sounds weird, right? It sounds like a little aggressive, but it's like, you know, it's, it's necessary. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that was the case when I was with, you know, when I worked with Joey, um, you know, I was the only lifter that he had at the time that like benched with like a, a big arch like that and was like, you know, a pretty proficient bench presser. And like, you know, we, we kind of know this about like Joey, like Joey very much supports like very conventional lifting styles, like his, his, you know, he's not like a technician, right? Like he's just, you know, he's, he's very good at working with people who have that, you know, no arch on bench, narrow squat, like conventional deadlift. Um, and the thing that was like so great about working with him is he's just like willing to be just like extra, extra resourceful in that regard where he's like, yeah, we'll bench five days a week. We'll bench six days a week. And I honestly think like, sure, there are a couple people like here and there who, you know, do bench that frequently, but it's, it's pretty uncommon or it was pretty uncommon, I would say. And I think that it wasn't until like, I spent years doing that and promoted it both as an athlete, as a coach, that it became like not necessarily mainstream because there are a lot of people who don't need to bench that frequently, but like there are a lot more people who see that as a viable strategy for their programming now. And it's like, that's why you have, like think about the general population, right? Like think about how massive a gym bro has to be to bench 405. Like usually to see a gym bro bench 405, they have to be really fucking jacked, right? But think about how many like middleweight men in powerlifting, arch or not, bench 405. It's a lot more, it's a lot more common because that skill acquisition has been improved from this ultra high frequency style of benching that never makes its way into norm, normal gym culture, mm -hmm. right? So without yeah. that, without that being a viable strategy for programming, it's like, you would not see as many 74 kilo lifters benching 180 or above. You would not see as many 83 kilo lifters benching 190 or 200 or whatever.
you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, I like you, you like, can take some credit. You can take some credit for it. It's okay. No, no, no. I know, but that's what I'm <laughs> it's like, it's it, without being, you know, resourceful in that regard and being like, I want to do anything for this progress. It's like, you don't, you don't get to the potentially like really, really valuable answers to these, yeah. these problems. And, and the reason why I'm kind of even bringing it up, because this is, you know, obviously this whole discussion was, you know, kind of more on the women's side, or that's what we try to do is um, a lot of times to be that higher level female lifter, I've seen some of what they've done and some of the extremes that some of these girls have worked into. And if you're always in that range, that's like, I'm just going to do what's comfortable for me and nothing else. It's like, okay, like that's what you're going to get. Yeah. You know, you have so, to be like, if you are, if you are like stagnant, right? Like mm -hmm. you could stay in, in doing what's comfortable, but like, you're going to get the comfortable result that you currently have. Like you, you only have one option, right? Like if you want to move forward, you only have, and it sucks in a way, right? I mean, I don't think it sucks, but for a lot of people, it sucks when it's like the only option I have is to just like brute force this mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, will myself to a positive outcome, but it's just, it's, it's the, how the game of adaptation goes. I, I very much respect you in this way of how resourceful you've been to stay at the same weight class over a long period of time. And I think, you know, I've tried to phrase this so many other ways in, you know, my ramblings or posts about it, it's troubleshooting and being able to exhaust every option and come to a conclusion, you know, of, what will, will make, you know, some sort of progress in this time. And whether it's, whether it's like something, okay, I can't necessarily bench six days a week, every week, you know, for the rest of my life. Okay. That's fine. But let's try it at least until this week and we can reevaluate things and go forward. I, I see a lot of people thinking like, Oh, well, the volume you're doing is unsustainable or, you know, Oh, you're doing this and there's no way you could keep you. It's like, okay, cool. I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. But you know, if I need to make progress and this is what I put in so much time to, I don't have another choice, right? Like the only other thing is like, if, Hey, if you're, you first intro this, you know, this idea in the first week, you like, I'm in excruciating pain or something. Okay. Then you can pull back obviously and make, you know, the, the reasonable decision, but some people are scared to even try it. Yeah. And I think we've, we've got to try to get people out of that comfort zone a little bit. Also, it's just like the more that you have to do, like, like if you're thinking about it from a standpoint of this is not sustainable, right? If you have to do that much, there are so many incremental steps between where you are now yeah. that, that quote unquote unsustainable that you can first do, right? It's like, if you're, if you're on, you know, if you feel like you some, at some point need to go to six days a week bench and you're like, Oh, this is not going to be sustainable, whatever. It's like bridge your way there. You can very easily bridge your way there. You add the six day and it's only one set, or maybe even you feel like adding the six day is too much. So you add the six day and it's one set and then you pull a set from like every other day of the week. It's just like, there's so many places that you can take from to mm -hmm. make this an incremental transition. Like you just need to understand things from like a, just a mathematical standpoint that like, Hey, it's not just like these discrete jumps. Like it exists on this spectrum where we can just make tiny tweaks here, take, you know, add to here, subtract from here, make this a variation, make this load limiting. Like there's just all these different things you can employ to get yourself on track to that final destination without having to just jump straight there. 
And I think if you don't see all those steps beforehand and you call whatever unsustainable, it's like, you're just, you're just wrong. You're, you're oblivious to everything that can, can come before that. Yeah. And I've, and I've had people almost like either to my face at the gym or say things like about like the way, like I'll even do my deadlifts, right? Like if I'm, you know, I have a double at like eight or something, it's like, Oh, there's no way you can manage this or I have no idea how you can handle this. And it's like, well, dude, it's like, you're not necessarily in my leverages. You're not necessarily in my particular positioning. You're not necessarily in this, you know, state that I am. And especially right where we're kind of going to how technical some pulls are. Right. And there's some deadlifts where, you know, I pulled my 852. I felt amazing after that. Like I could pull again the next day where like the positioning and everything being so locked in makes it that much easier and, you know, um, easier to recover from, right? If it's mm -hmm. locked in, it's very specific range of motion. Perfect. As we know on bench, very easy to, you know, continue from there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I had someone go on and on, man. <laughs> I know. I know we should, we should wrap this one up soon, but yeah, I, I had, uh, I had someone comment or, you know, submit a Q and a the other day and they asked, you know, what my training schedule looks like. And I made a story and I detailed it. I was like, Monday is, you know, squat, belt, squat, bench, Larson, RDLs. And then Tuesday is bench. And then Wednesday is squat, bench, deadlift, hyperextensions. And then Thursday is bench. And then Friday is deadlift bench. And then Saturday is squat, bench, belt, squat. Right. And the next, like very soon after someone's like, don't you think that's like too much? Like, how do you recover from it? And I'm just like, like, I don't, I don't think ever from that perspective. All I ever think about is where am I now? Am I making progress? Okay. I'm not making progress or I need to do more. Like, let's go to that. Right. And it's just like, I, I, I can't even imagine like thinking in that, like forecasting mindset where it's like i'm like dude like this is this is what i do because it works like i don't i don't care how many sets it is i don't think about like if it, if if i weren't recovering then it wouldn't work you know what i mean like if if it were unsustainable or i weren't recovering then i'd be in pain then i wouldn't be making progress then i wouldn't see predictable you know performance increases from week to week it's like it works that's why i do it i don't think about anything else yeah it's that frame of mind man and I hate to say it, but, and it sounds privileged to say it, it's like, it's the forever intermediate yeah. <laughs> frame of mind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. This was, this was a really, really in-depth one. I'm really happy. To <laughs> I took, yeah. uh, I took some, uh, what is it? Gorilla Mind Smooth. I don't know if you've ever used that before. It's, uh, it's just like a, uh, uh, like a cognitive enhancer, nootropic, whatever that they make. It's like very similar to, I think like what one ten percent is just put out. Like I think Jack Factory has like a, a focus um, thing with it that also has like caffeine in it. But it's just like as soon as we said like oh we're gonna talk about like programming or women's stuff, I was like all right, let's get this shit going. I need to be able to to rattle this shit off. You were on PEDs for our conversation today, huh? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. You had an unfair advantage. Exactly. <laughs> I think it was good though. There's a lot of you know. The line of thinking I think applies for men and women. It's just the range or end of the spectrum that they're on is different, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I'm I'm really happy that we fleshed out some of those like more in-depth topics because I think that the, you know, obviously the women's stuff, there's a lot of really good insights, but I think that some of what we talked about, like with the with the, you know, dose response curve and stuff like that, it's just like this is like perspective on how to think about coaching. Mm -hmm. right and it's just like 
if you're, if you're thinking like that, you are just going to be better than other coaches, like flat out. Like I, I just, there's so many coaches who are still like in the frame of mind where it's like, all right, it's a, a volume block. So we're going to do, you know, we're going to do all high reps and the rep ranges are, or the set count is going to go up 30%. And then the next block, we're going to bring it back down to the old volume and do these mid rep. And it's just like, that's just not how, it's just not how this works. It's not, it's you're, you're thinking, you're thinking backwards about all of this, but. Um, can we, can we add one more thing and we can cut this out if we, we need to, but birth control. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, neither of us are doctors. However, uh, I've read, I've read like uh, a lot of Lyle McDonald stuff about birth control and performance. And I just, I've worked with a lot of female lifters who have taken birth control. I've worked with a lot of female lifters who have, you know, gone to a doctor and been like, yeah, I want a non-hormonal IUD or I want the, um, you know, the, 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 like the patch thing on the arm or mm -hmm. whatever. And it like, it still fucks them up. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I think there's a ton of data at this point to suggest that hormonal birth control is, is not just terrible for you, but horrible for your training. Yeah. Um, but I've seen it crush. It, it crushes oh, I've so many and that don't realize like, you know, that that probably is it and why they feel drained or why they feel all these other. It's become, it's normal. become normal. Like everyone just normal. like, like, like there are women, they just like turn like 14 years old and their doctor's like, all right, you don't want your period to hurt anymore. Here you go. And it's just, like, all right, I'm, I'm on this for the rest of my life. Um, I remember Tina. Yeah. I remember Tina, you know, Joey's, Joey's fiance, Tina tornado. And she was on birth control for a while. And she was like, she had a lot of pain associated with training. Her numbers were shit. She went to the doctor and they were like, yeah, your testosterone levels are like undetectable. Um, <laughs> like literally it's just like on the, on the, on the panel, uh, mm -hmm you know, test results, it was just like, like NA or like sub, like Jesus. whatever, whatever minimum threshold it was. She got off her testosterone jumped back up to like, you know, 30 nanograms per deciliter, whatever, whatever it was. Right. And like things just picked up immediately. And then, you know, I've had lifters who are on non-hormonal birth control and then eventually they get the curiosity. They have conversations with people. They're like, ah, I'm going to, I'm going to get off this. And it's just like, it, 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 it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, I, 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 <laughs> I don't no, want as, as not a doctor here, but I don't, yeah, I don't want to say anything that's like too, uh, outside of my, my pay grade. And I recognize that there is a lot that is outside of my pay grade, but I will say that I, I will confidently say that it's become a norm to take it when it absolutely shouldn't be. There are reasons that people take it that are, are trivial or not necessary. And the final piece that I'm confident in saying is that a lot of people either overlook or underestimate the effects that it will have on their body composition, on their training, on their mood. And if you're working towards something like lifting and you're putting all of this effort in and, you know, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a, uh, like a, a, like a, I'm just trying to think how to explain this in a not nerdy way, but I'm thinking of like, <laughs> like mechanical, like, you know, engine efficiency. It's like, you just have like these inputs, right. And it goes into this little system and then it like has this, this output, right. And, and the efficiency of the system is, is essentially, you know, proportional to like how much of the output you're able to extract from that input, right. Like the usable energy that you have, like how much are we able to actually create work from it? And there's no worse feeling than putting effort into something and then it goes into the system and something in the system 
decides, well, that's going to be dissipated as this, or that's not going to get used up. You're using it, you're, you're expending that energy, but the outcome is not the expected result from all of that effort. And, you know, a lot of times people have make conscious decisions that they are aware of where they're like, yeah, you know, I go out and drink every weekend or my diet is shit. And I know that that's going to affect me in some capacity. But there are things like this where either, you know, there are women who are unaware or they just aren't aware of the, the gravity of it or the severity of it, where it's like, you know, I'm getting frustrated that I'm not progressing and it's affecting my mental health. And then you don't realize like, well, you have this handicap that you've put on yourself and it's, you know, it's holding back your, your training. And, you know, having your testosterone that low, I mean, for, as, a, as a woman, you still have, I think it's true, I have a podcast I heard, it was like, you still have more testosterone than estrogen, you know, as a, as a female anyways, like that is huge. Like, and if you are tanking that, which is what's responsible for a lot of this, you're not asking for a good situation with training. Yep. No, Absolutely. All right, we're good. We didn't have to cut anything out of that. We didn't say anything. <laughs> at least I don't yeah. think. Well, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see what the reception is. But at any rate, this was, this was a really good one chance. I enjoyed this a lot. I hope that the people listening enjoyed this. I think that this will be one that's very, uh, this is going to be an attractive one for the, the real like programmers and like, you know, lifters who are, who are into the nitty gritty coaching stuff and for coaches out there who are listening. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Again, this was episode 11 of the High Bar Podcast with myself, Sean Riega, and Chance Mitchell. Um, we will see you guys on the next one. I will be going away this week, so we will not have any, any others this week, but probably next week or the week after, we'll be back on here, and we'll either be talking powerlifting or something completely unrelated. Haven't decided. No, we're going to talk about your off-the-grid experience for sure. We are? For sure. Let's do it. Okay. All right, we're going to talk about my off-the-grid experience. Hopefully, I make it back alive. But all right, guys, thank you so much for listening, and uh, take care.